The year was uh, 1859. At 34 years of age, the French acrobat Jean-Francois Cavalier, or as we know him, Charles Blunden, made his intercontinental trip from France to the border of New York and Canada. And he was going to do something that that no one else had ever accomplished before, a a feat so dangerous, so unfathomable, as 25,000 people gathered to watch, majority of them were betting that he would fail. On a two-inch slack line, Blunden would, well, attempt the impossible. Spanning 1,300 feet, 200 feet above water, he would cross the boiling cataract, also known as Niagara Falls. Step by step by step, he made his way across, carrying his 26-foot, 50-pound balancing pole and slowly made his way from New York to the Canadian border. As he got off on the other side, everyone began to clap and cheer at the amazement of what he could do. But then about a week later, he would return, more people gathered, more betting on his demise and how he would fail, and he said, but I'm going to do it differently this time. And so he proceeded, well, to do it backwards. And then another week later, he returned yet again. More people thinking, okay, there's no way he could do this three times in a row. And he decides to do it not just backwards, but backwards blindfolded. And so then he kind of just began uh, the guy, the amazing Mr. Charles Blunden began time after time coming up with new ways to cross the 1,300 feet above the Niagara Falls. He, he somersaults in one instance, which I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you hold on to a pole somersaulting. He uh, has his assistant jump on as a piggyback makes his way across. Another time, he brings a table, chair, and a small stove, proceeds to cook an omelet in the middle of the waterfall, eat it, and then make his way across. Time after time, again. And after every time he successfully got to the other side, everyone would clap and shout and cheer, you're amazing, this is incredible. And so one time he decided, you know what, I'm going to see how far I can push it. So he brings a wheelbarrow with him. Perhaps you've heard this part of the story. And uh, he's getting ready to go and say, how many of you think that I I could go across with this wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, of course you can. You're amazing. You're the amazing Charles Blunt. You can do anything. And so he makes his way across with the wheelbarrow. Getting ready to come back, he says, how many of you think I could do that again, but this time blindfolded? Well, yeah, there's nothing you can't do. We trust you. You're amazing. And so he goes all the way back with the wheelbarrow blindfolded. He gets to the other side and is getting ready to go back. And he says, how many of you believe that I could do this with a sack of potatoes in the wheelbarrow? And so they're like, of course you can. And so he puts the potatoes in and he wheels his way all the way across. And then his final trek back, he asks, okay, how many of you think that, well, I could do this with one of you in the wheelbarrow? And of course, everyone starts to shout and cheer. Yes, we believe you could do that. That's amazing. Of course you can. And so then he asks the ominous question. So who wants in? <laughs> and, and to no surprise and to no one's dismay, no one takes him up on the offer. No, no one says, okay, well, I've seen you do this countless times, countless ways, and they're saying, you're amazing, we trust you. But when push came to so, no one actually got in the wheelbarrow. And so the question becomes, did they actually trust his skill or not? Now, I'm just to be honest, I don't think I would have gotten in the wheelbarrow either. I know I'm not going to discredit against anyone. But that's kind of what we're talking about today as we wrap up this teaching series called Christian Atheists, is it's easy to trust, but sometimes it's harder to do, isn't it? 
So the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea that a Christian atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. We've talked about the person who believes in God, says, God, I know you're real, but doesn't actually know him, doesn't have an intimate relationship. Last week, we talked about some of us believe in God. Those of us who, who believe in God, maybe we've been baptized, we go to church, but we don't want to go overboard. And Greg and Danny both asked that, that super deep and kind of poignant question, are we lukewarm and loving it? And so this week, we're talking about this final tension about sometimes if we need to reflect on our lives as a Christian atheist, and is this, is that I believe in God, but I don't really trust him. Like, I don't, I don't truly trust him with everything in my life. Everything that he asks of me, everything that he requires of me, the jury is still out. Because kind of, I think some of us, what begins to happen is, is we play this game with God, saying, God, I, I know you're real, I, I believe in you, I, I see the power of scripture, however, you haven't blank. And so we begin to create this list of God you haven't. And so God, until you do these things, I've got this wish list, kind of like, like God's almost like Santa Claus or something, that until you fill in the blank, until you give me this thing you haven't done, my jury is still out on you. Well, God, I'm not going to fully trust you until you heal that person who I love. Well, God, I'm going to trust you with some things, but not everything until you give me that dream house or that dream job that I've asked you for. Well, God, I, 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 I kind of trust you, but I'm not going to trust you with everything in my life until you can kind of maybe fix this relationship. And so we play this game with God. God, until you prove it, then I will trust you fully. And we do this in different ways, don't we? We say, we, we say or, or we live it out. God, you can have an hour of my Sunday. I'll give you that. But I get the rest of my week. God, God, I trust you for my salvation. You can save me from the bondage and the oppression of my sin and give me a new life. However, I get to raise my kids as I see fit. Well, God, you can have the occasional dollar in the plate. You know, when the, when the mission makes sense or, or the organization really speaks to my heart, but I'm really going to trust myself with the whole other 99% of my finances. We create this God you haven't, and until you do, I'm not going to fully trust you with everything. You see, when it comes down to it, we're kind of like those spectators watching Blunden cross back and forth Niagara Falls. We trust you, we believe in you, we see what you're capable of, but when it's time to actually get into the wheelbarrow, and it's time uh, to actually put action to word, we kind of call it easy. Oh God, I'm not quite so sure about you yet. The thing is, is, this is natural for all of us. If you're sitting there right now thinking, okay, I don't know, yeah, he's talking about me, all of us could be raising our hands saying, yeah, 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 I, I, that's who I am too, Right? It's not easier or natural for us to trust God because here's why is trust, think about it this way, trust is a ledger in which we always balance it out. Trust is one of those things that it takes years to earn and seconds to lose, doesn't it? Think about those, uh, those people who've been married for decades, decade after decade after decade, but then all it takes is what? One moment, one decision for that relationship to come crumbling down. You hear the stories about the people who've spent year after year after year, decades, maybe an entire career at one company, but all it takes is one act of immorality to bring that person down and their job with them. You see, trust is one of these things. It talks, we talk about hope, confidence in a proven track record, right? Like if there's somebody that you trust in life, isn't it someone who's proven it up until this point? 
Someone who has showed you that they are reliable or trustworthy. I remember when, um, when my wife and I uh, went to go buy our first house. So I was fresh out of college. She, or she was fresh out of college. It was like one or two years into my first, first youth ministry. And uh, we went to buy a house that was less than $40,000, okay? And so we found this little house. We're like, oh my gosh, this is great. And you know, you go online and you do the mortgage calculator. Oh, we can easily afford this house. The mortgage is gonna be less than our car payment at the time. This is a no-brainer. And so we, we, we looked at the house, toward the house, and we went to the bank and we sat down and we said, sir, we would like to buy this house. Can you write us a loan? And the guy says, sure. And he, he takes all your info and you give them and you, you, know, you do the, like the official thing where you slide the papers across the table. They look at it, slide it back. It's just so cool when you do that. I don't know. Anyways, okay. <laughs> and so, and then finally, uh, you know, after like 30 minutes and the guy gets up and they're chit-chatting and that's never a good sign when they have to get up. Let me go talk to my supervisor really quick, right? And he comes back and he says, yeah, there's nothing we can do for you. We, 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 can't, we can't fund this loan for you. And we, we, my wife and I were like, what do you mean? Like, it's like, it's, it's less than our car payment. Of course we can do this. And they said, here's the problem. He said, it's not that you have bad credit. It's just that you have zero credit. And we're like, isn't that a good thing? He was like, actually, it's not. Because why? There was no proven track record. Basically, what he was saying to us is there is no track record for us to trust that you would make your payments every single month. Because that's what trust is. It's a ledger that we balance based on a proven track record time and time again. So the question for us this morning is why is it so hard? Why is it difficult or problematic for us to trust God with everything in life? Like, like not just some things, not just the spiritual things, or not just the church. Why is it difficult for us to trust God with everything in life? Because the thing is, though, it's always been this way. There's always been this propensity for mankind to not trust God. Let me give you three examples this morning. Genesis 3, Deuteronomy 9, and then Mark chapter 9. Think about the very beginning of creation. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them to walk with him. They're in the Garden of Eden. He's, they're living in shalom, harmony, unity with God. And God has said, everything you see is yours. The land, the livestock, everything I have given is for you to, to eat and to enjoy. And it says they literally walked with God in the flesh. And the one thing that God said was, you can do everything, anything you want. Just the one thing I, you just can't do. You see that tree in the middle there. And they're like, yeah, we see that tree. That's the tree of knowledge. You're just don't eat from that tree. Everything else is fair game. And then Satan, wanting to destroy God's creation to ruin that shalom, what does he convince Eve of? Gets her to believe that perhaps God isn't as trustworthy as he claims. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the fall of mankind begins this way. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Original sin, our, our, our lack of faith, our obedience has this root in not fully trusting God at his word. 
And from that point forward, there's this continual cycle, page after page after page, book after book after book, story after story after story, in which the people of God, specifically the nation of Israel, especially in the Old Testament, they go through this period, they go through this time in which they will be delivered from, from oppression, they will, be, they will win wars, they will have a, a, a famine taken care of on their behalf, and yet they continue over and over again to not fully trust God. Let me give you an example of Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. says these words. It says, And when the Lord sent you out of Kadesh Barnea, they were under impression here, and he said, Go up, take possession of the land I have given you. I have promised it to you. You can trust me that I have already given this to you. But you rebelled against the command, the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You've been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. The cycle continues over and over and over. What started in the garden goes through the nation of Israel. You think, well, well, surely the people who walked with Jesus, surely the disciples who, who were Jesus' closest followers, who, who, who Jesus spent time with for three full years teaching them what it means to reveal the kingdom of God. Surely they didn't ever have any issues of trusting God, right? Mark chapter 9. There's an interesting story in which this man brings a demon-possessed son. And it says that the disciples had tried, but they had failed to drive it out. And look at how this story kind of plays out. In Mark chapter 29, or 9, starting in verse 23, he says, If... You can, they're talking about Jesus. Jesus, if you can heal him, that would be great. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I commend you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, ah! Maybe it did, I don't know, okay, anyways convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he did. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Translation, you trusted your own strength and not mine. I have told you time and time again, you ask and I will do marvelous things through you, but you thought you could do it without me. Think about this. All sin, all disobedience, all lack of faith has a root in our temptation to not trust God. With Eve and Adam in the garden, it was, whoa, whoa, whoa. well, did God really say that? Can you actually trust him? With Israel, well, you're the one who went to battle. You're the one who held the sword. Can you really trust that God was fighting on your behalf? To the 12, you trusted your own strength, your own understanding, what you could do in your own might other than God. I mean, to think, like, doesn't this sound a lot like the culture and society that, that, that we live in? Advice plagues us all the time. Listen to your heart. Trust what feels right. You do you, boo, and figure it out. See, this, this, this difficulty to trust God fully with everything is something that has been with us from day one. Like, you ever had one of those moments in which you just went with your gut? Sometimes that's not a bad thing. You ever, like, just go with your gut and you realize, like, oh, that was a mistake. Should have thought of that one through. 
You ever blurted something out that felt right in the moment? Maybe you accused or assumed somebody of something. You're connecting all these pieces that don't really match together, but you just assumed that's what was happening and it left a pile of hurt or confusion or pain in the wake. You see, when we tend to trust ourselves, our gut, who we are first and foremost, it typically leads us astray. There's a man by the name of Solomon who was given kind of like anything that he wanted. God came to him and said, I will give you anything you want. Do you want money? Do you want houses? Do you want land? Do you want livestock? What do you want? And he asks for wisdom. And he wrote this book called Proverbs. Proverbs is a great book in the middle of the Bible. And it, and it talks about these little nuggets of wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Solomon gives arguably some of the best wisdom and advice that we could live out in this life. Look at what he says in, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Notice it says, trust with all your heart. In all your ways, submit to God. Don't trust God with some of your heart, or trust God with some of your ways. Don't trust God with just what feels right. Don't just follow God in the ways that you think you ought to. With everything. See, it's interesting, if trusting God with everything, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is easy, there would be no need for Solomon to be like, hey, I got a little piece of advice and wisdom here I want to give you. But because it is so antithetical to who we are, there's this reminder that you do not naturally trust God easily. I don't, you don't, none of us do. Therefore, hear this wisdom that I have for you. See, the word trust here is the word bachta in the Hebrew. It's a word that means safety and security from someone or something. Isn't that a good definition for trust? Isn't that what trust is? It's someone that you feel safe with. That something that you trust is, is secure. It's not going to change. It's not going to deviate with the winds or the ebbs and flows of society or culture or what's happening around them. You see, that which is most trustworthy ought to be the thing in which we feel the most safe and secure with that thing and or that person. That's why it's hard for us to sometimes trust someone that broke trust. I don't feel safe with you anymore. I don't feel secure with you anymore. You've hurt me too many times. I forgive you, but I no longer trust you. And so we begin to lean, we find crutches and the things in our life, in our understanding that brings us the most feelings of safety or security. So could it be that we have a difficult time trusting God because we lean on things in this life over God, over his word, over his presence, over the power of his spirit? What, what do you what do I, what do we lean on more than God for safety, comfort, or security in this life? I want to share something that, that, that I've been wrestling with um, here in the last, I don't know, couple months or so. So the last couple months, uh, I felt the Spirit convict me of something in which I was placing a lot of, say, trust, comfort, safety, security 
in one of my, my diet habits. I, I love sugar. I love candy and that type of stuff. Now, a lot of you are probably, hey, Eric, you don't have a problem with your weight. What are you talking about? It's not a weight thing, but hear me out on this, okay? This is what I mean by that. Is, is any time I began to notice that any time I felt stressed, any time I felt anxious, overwhelmed, every time I felt worried or didn't have, have control in a situation, sometimes anger, bitter, whatever it is, my gut instinct was to go for some candy, you know, those nerd ropes really make a huge dent in that moment. I tell you what, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with eating candy. There's nothing wrong with having some sugar. But for me, I began to notice that every single moment became a habit of mine that I wouldn't trust God first. I would trust God maybe second, maybe third, maybe down the list. But my gut instinct was to reach for that little hit of sugar. God, I'm a little anxious right now. Ugh. And we feel good for about, you know, five seconds. And then my tummy would hurt because I'd eat like 10 of them. But, you know, that type of stuff, right? God, I'm a little anxious about this. God, I'm a little overwhelmed here. And what I began to notice is I didn't trust when God says, lean on me for peace. Lean on me for hope. Go to my word when you feel anxious above all. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. Instead, I began to trust that little hit of sugar that it would come into my life for that specific moment. So what is it for you? Because I know there's something. We're all alike. We're all human. What's the thing that you would say you trust, you lean towards, when life seems a little overwhelming? Is it that job? I just got to work a few more hours, get a little bit more value out of my life. You pull up that bank account, making sure the number's going up and not down. Is it a person? Is it a relationship that you run to? Sometimes we, we, we chase after bitterness or anger because we feel like we, we are in somewhat of control in this situation. God, I don't trust your, your call for forgiveness. I don't trust you to heal this, so I'm going to hold on to the bitterness and anger because I can at least control that. Is it a substance, alcohol, drugs, food? You put your trust in politics, control, social media? I don't know what it is. My guess is that there's something that we tend to lean on with God, that the parts of our heart, our mind, who we are, aren't fully trusted and invested with the ways of the Lord. We instead lean on something else. Because here's the thing, though, I, I, I think this is what happens to us, is it's hard for us to trust God with everything, especially when the moments in front of us begin to stack up. Because they are in front of us, and we can't sometimes see God beyond him. God, God, I trust you with my salvation, but this person right here is right here, and I'm just gonna, God, God, I trust you with some things, but my job is here, my finances is here, my home is here, my kids are here, and the whole time, God, I don't know if you're here, I think you are, I kind of believe, because I know that's what I'm supposed to do, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple, blah, 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 all that type of stuff, but we don't actually trust him because he's kind of a little out of sight, out of mind, we don't see him, and those other things are right there in front of us, but God, I can see the money in the bank account going up, I can feel this person tangibly. I can reach out. I can call. I can text that person. I can pick up that bottle, whatever it is. And we begin to say, God, I trust these things because I see them and they're in front of me, but you feel a little distant. In the Old Testament, there was this command all throughout uh, the Old Testament that, that whenever God would deliver the nation of Israel, he would tell them to stop 
He would tell them to pause. And wherever they are, he would tell them to build what's called a 12-stone altar, sometimes referred to as an altar of remembrance. When they were delivered out of the the hands of slavery in in Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea, right? When Moses parts the Red Sea, and they walk through, and all the other, and everyone dies. They're like, yeah, we made it. We're going to the promised land before they went anywhere else. Stop, build me an altar. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai carrying the law of the Lord, before you return to the people, pause there, build a temple to remember what I have just given you. When Joshua and the, other, the rest of the nation of Israel, they walk around the city of Jericho seven times and they shout with the shofars and the walls come crashing down and they go in and say, this is our land that God has given us and they all run away. Ah, they're coming. And they, you know, and the, you, we've got the promised land. What's the first thing that they're commanded to do? Stop, pause, build an altar of remembrance. So as you would walk around the countryside of the ancient Middle East, there would be uh, these, these 12 stone altars. I don't know, this isn't like a Tuscale replica or anything. Okay, you know, but this is the best I could find in my yard. Um, but you would be able to, to stop, to pause, to remember, because that physical location served as a reminder for how God had been good, faithful, true to his promises and to his people. So think about it. Generations are developing as they're headed back to Jerusalem, maybe for the the Day of Atonement or whatever it is. And they walk by a 12-stone altar. Perhaps the grandfather would call it, hey, let me just remind you all, this spot right here, let me remind you what God has done. This is where God delivered us. Me and my fellow soldiers, we we were up against it, but God showed up. He fought on our behalf. We don't know how it happened. We were outnumbered 10 to 1, yet he came through. And so we stop to remember his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, how he is true. See, this is the point I'm making. Could it be that we have a hard time remembering God and trusting God? Not because we're not receiving things, but because we fail to remember what he's done for us in the past already. Could it be that as those gods you haven't lists grow longer, it's because we have failed to remember what God has been doing all along? You see, here's the reason that the 12 stone altars speak to me it's because those outlive people. Generations would go, and yet the altar would remain. Let us remember, let us sacrifice, let us worship the ways in which God has provided for us. You want to tangibly see, hear, feel what God has done. Remember that if he did it then, he can do it again. If he came through then, he could come through us now. If he delivered me from my pain then, he can deliver me from my pain now. If he came through when I didn't know what to do then, then he certainly could now. What are you struggling to trust God with right now? What is it? There's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. But this is the point, okay? Don't miss this. I think this is the point of this message. This is the point of this series is don't miss this. The the way in which we learn to trust God is saying, God, give me more. You, You fulfill your end of the bargain, then I'll trust you. Rather, it's to remember that we need to strive to remember more than we glean or seek to receive from God. It's hard. It's difficult. 
But think of it this way. Instead of having a God you haven't list, list what God has done. You like that, don't you? Instead of saying, God, you haven't done these things, remember what he has done. God, you haven't healed that person. I've been praying for weeks, months, potentially years, but what you can't say is, but God, what I know you have done is you have given me the promise that all, all pain and suffering will go away for all eternity. God, you haven't healed that relationship with that person, but you know what he has done is he has sent his son to die on a cross to restore that relationship with you. He said, well, God, you haven't given me that new job. You haven't given me that new house, but what you have done is made sure there's a roof over my head and, and food in my belly. I've never put my head down to sleep without feeling the, the hunger pains that some people God, you, 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 you haven't delivered me from that sin or that temptation or that struggle, but what he has done is he has promised to be with you. He has promised for his spirit to be in you. He has promised his grace outweighs his judgment. His forgiveness is always stronger than our sin and in our past. Instead of saying, God, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't, what if we just started to say, God, you have. You've been here I'm going to seek to remember how you have shown up in my life. See, the common thread throughout the scriptures, you can see this especially in the book of Judges. They obey, they follow God, they fall away. Why? Because they did what was right in their own eyes. The greatest temptation to living a Christian atheist life, it's not the, the genuine atheists of this world. It's not the people around you who don't go to church. It's not the people around you who don't have a relationship with Jesus. The greatest temptation to live as a Christian atheist is yourself. The temptation to, to just go with your gut to do what feels right to you without truly and fully trusting God above all else. And that the remedy for it isn't God give me more. Let me receive more of the stuff you have for me in my life until you make me healthy, wealthy, or wise. I'm not going to trust you with everything in my life. Rather, the remedy is to remember. It's not, it's not God, will you come through for me when I'm failing, flailing, or falling. Rather, it's you've already come through. That I was failing, flailing, or falling in my sin, in my distance from you, in my brokenness, and you already came through by sending your son Jesus to restore me, to make me new with you. Here's the point that I think we can all apply and take home with us this morning. Ready for this? Is that seeing what God has done prepares us to do what he asks of us. Seeing what God has done prepares us to do what he asks of us. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything about being a follower of Jesus and say, oh yeah, you just say a few prayers and boom, you're good, you just live your life. No, no. Now following Jesus, being a true, genuine disciple means sacrifice. It means living differently. Now, now, sometimes I think we, we think that if I fully know God, if I fully, you know, if I'm okay with going overboard, if I fully trust God, he's going to call me to be a missionary, he's going to call me to, 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 to sell all my things, and i got to live in a box, and I, you know, give away my entire side. No, no, no. Here's the thing. is that, that, that following God isn't actually probably going to radically change the, the tangible aspects of your life, but what it will do, it will change how you live them out. He's not going to all of a sudden take away your family because you've decided to follow him more wholeheartedly. But what he might do is say, yeah, but make sure you prioritize them in a way that their faith is, is above everything else. He's not going to tell you to quit your job and that you have to like go, go like, I don't know how it's going to work. I'm just going to go volunteer at the church 70 hours a week and see what happens. No, he's not. In fact, but he might say, you know what your job is? It's a chance for you to be a missionary. 
in your job, in your community, the people around you, that your job's not just a job to make money, it's an opportunity for you to share the gospel. That the money you make, it's not necessarily bad or wrong to make money, but what you might say is, however, what you do with it shows what you trust most. Seeing what God has done prepares us to do what he asks of us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. It's a great verse. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. Leaning on our own understanding, leaning on our own heart as working for human masters. Trusting God with everything else is leaning on him. So how do we know that we can trust God. As we move to our time of response this morning, I want to think of it this way. The way in which you can trust God is because of his love. I was wrestling with this. Do we trust God because of his word? Do we trust God because, you know, there's a lot of things, but here's the ultimate thing I, I, I came to is we can trust God because of his unconditional love. Let me break it down for you this way. God's unconditional love means this, is that he loves you. He cares for you. He has plans. He has desires for your life, regardless of where you have been, what you have done. Regardless of what you think about him, regardless of how much you have embraced him or pushed him away, God's unconditional love is always for you. It does not change. You cannot do anything that makes God love you more and you cannot do anything that makes God love you less. It does not change. It is full, it is powerful, it is amazing, it is truly awe-filled awesome and it does not change. Bata, trust that which is safe, that which is secure. And if there's anything that I wanna trust in this life, it's gonna be the thing that does not change when I mess it up. It's going to be that thing that I trust, that I lean into when everything else seems a little scattered. When the foundations of this world, when the foundations of my relationships, when the foundations of my decisions start to crumble away, guess what hasn't changed? It's the love of God. His truly unconditional love. Now here's the thing. There's unconditional and there's conditional. Conditional says prove it first. And that's how we play with God. Well, God, prove it first. Prove that you love me. Then I will conditionally trust you. And he says, okay, I'll play that game too. Your sin separates me from you. It's a, it's a debt you cannot pay. You cannot overcome it in your own strength. However, I will conditionally send a payment. I will conditionally show you my love by sending my son, Jesus Christ. He will die on a cross. He will take his final breath. He will bleed blood. His bones will be broken. He will go to a grave and he will raise three days later. There's my conditional proof of my love. My conditional proof of my love supports my unconditional love for you. We can trust God, all that he is, all that he calls for us because his love is unconditional. So if you're like me in those moments, in those seasons, in which you're having a hard time trusting God, you know what you ought to do, but you don't. You know how you're supposed to like extend forgiveness to that person, but you won't. Whatever it is, you gotta give up that thing. You know, that relationship is toxic. I don't know, you fill in a blank for whatever it is. You know, you, are, you know what you can do is you can say, but I can remember 
God's goodness. I can look back. I can remember what he's done for me. I can remember his unconditional love in my life. If you have your communion, I invite you to partake with me this morning. Let's remember how we can trust God in his unconditional love this morning. Because last night with his disciples, Jesus held up the bread. He took it. He broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And then he held up the cup. He said, this is my blood, shed for you. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of my love. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Father, you are good. You are love. Your love is unconditional. It does not change. And that is why we can trust you above all else. God, may we remember, help us to see the ways in which you have been for us so we can trust you with all our heart, with all our ways, and not just some. Serene, we pray.